You're a busy provider trying to stay current with the latest HIV testing, prevention, and treatment guidelines, and your pockets are overflowing with note cards. You need a convenient, trustworthy source for HIV testing, treatment, prevention, and care protocols. All healthcare professionals have a role in stopping HIV. Introducing HIV Care Tools from the AIDS Education and Training Center program. The HIV Care Tools mobile app is simple, free, and fully functional offline or online. It features quick guides for HIV prevention, screening, testing, diagnosis, and treatment. HIV Care Tools provides common clinical calculators used in HIV management and provide validated screening tools for comorbidities such as depression, substance use disorders, and PTSD. And if you need clinician-to-clinician consultation, HIV Care Tools provides one-touch access to free clinical consultation services by a multidisciplinary team of experts. Take us with you. Download HIV Care Tools today. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Breitman. Today, I'm sitting down with John Farragon to talk about the Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections, or CROI, which took place in February of 2023. Welcome again, John. Thanks, Mariana. Happy to be here again. So, John, this is our first update from the CROI meeting. So what is it about and why is it so important? Yes, of course, the uh, the annual um, big HIV meeting that happens uh, once a year. And for the last couple of years, it's actually been um, actually the last three years, it's been done uh, virtually. But uh, this was the first time in four years, basically, that we've actually been in person. So this year's CROI 2023 was held in Seattle. Um, so the last one in person was in 2019. So it's, you know, it's been a long time. So uh, just a couple of things, just to give you a sense of who comes to the conference, uh, 3,499 attendees and 2947, so just under 3,000 were actually in person. And the rest of them, 552 were actually done virtually. Um, this, uh, the CROI conference is an international conference as well. So it represented 72 different countries and 40% of the, of the attendees are actually from outside of the United States this year. Um, the other thing too that people like to worry about is, or not talk worry about, but talk about is, you know, how many abstracts were from the United States. And uh, actually only um, about 37% about so about a third of them were actually authors who are presenting abstracts outside of the United States. And, and this year in particular, it was interesting. It was that there was just under a thousand or 959 uh, first time attendees. So again, a lot of, a lot of people go to this meeting um, and, you know, like I think anybody that, that, that goes to it, I think would say the same thing. It was just good to be actually in person this time instead of having to do it virtually. Um, so a couple of things, um, we're just going to cover some of the open air, opening sessions and some of the other information from the first day or so. Um, and we'll have other other updates on Cray as well that we'll try to cover. We'll be able to cover just one more episode. We may need two more episodes to actually cover all of it, but um, we'll be doing that in the next couple of weeks. So opening session, uh, there was a nice talk uh, on dynamics of HIV infection and cure by an Alan uh, uh, Perelson. Um, he's from the um, Los Angeles, uh, sorry, Los, Al- Los Alamos National Laboratory. Did a lengthy discussion on mathematical modeling of HIV viral load decay over time. So really, it was a cool talk, and he used like a lot of the complex math and experiments and to kind of validate them. And he reviewed different historical regimens used in HIV and the decay of the virus over time, which really led to the discussion of kind of these longer phases of HIV decay in the reservoir. Um, and his collaborative research now is actually looking at the use of these broadly neutralizing antibodies 
or other treatments to to affect viral set points or patients. So really, really cool talk by um, by Alan uh, Perelson. Um, next up was what we call the N-Galley Man Lecture uh, by Kevin DeCock. And this is every year someone gets uh, awarded the, the ability to do this, do this lecture. Um, and this provided a nice historical overview of HIV infection over time uh, and uh, Dr. DeCock's work at the CDC and other agencies. He discussed in detail the facts of uh, the social determinants of health that are really a major factor in HIV. And I think all of us that are doing HIV care now and um, in the modern heart era, I understand that, you know, these these factors are really, really important as we go forward and trying to make sure that we successfully treat a number of patients. So these are all uh, important as we meet some of our goals for any HIV epi epidemic and also for international goals as well. Um, next up was um, Yvette Raphael. Uh, they, they actually uh, did the Martin Delaney presentation, which uh, looked at advocacy for prevention of HIV and AIDS in South Africa. So, so this this presenter actually was more of a kind of an advocacy person, which was interesting. Um, but they uh, she discussed in detail the challenges of HIV prevention efforts in South Africa, um, and more specifically the lack of education and awareness of PrEP for young Black women, um, and reviewed some of the uh, advocacy interventions that really could be incorporated for these for these populations, and had numerous slides on the efforts of. of of her group and other groups in South Africa. And I think really, I think energized a lot of the crowd uh, to, to address some of these issues. And, and particularly as it related to drug pricing, talked about the, the drug pricing of injectable PrEP what, uh, and also the use of the vaginal ring as potential interventions beyond the use of oral PrEP for, for patients. So really nice section on, on both on uh, you know, the history of, um, uh, you know, the history of kind of modeling some of the stuff by Dr. DeCock looking at other agencies and, you know, disparities in care, et cetera. And then also this Martin Delaney presentation looking at advocacy. So finally, um, they actually finished with a 30-year CROI video, which highlighted the initial development of the meeting in 1993 and some of the major milestones in HIV science that were presented at CROI. And then after that, very, very much after that, right, almost immediately, they, they, um, they, they put uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci on, and he he did a, a really kind of quick overview uh, discussing the formation of the meeting in 1993 and went through a timeline through 2023 that highlighted some of the major events in HIV treatment, including triple drug ARV therapy, the origins of HIV, um, use of PrEP for prevention, some of the U equals U studies, um, and some of the key studies like the partners and discuss of, of the role rollout of not just CAP for prevention, but also cabopivirine for treatment and now lenacapavir as long-acting injectables. Really kind of a nice overview of where we are with HIV and, and the whole history of how we've gotten to where we are in 2023. And also reviewed uh, two main pieces you know, for the future, which is really a focus on both vaccine research uh, and cure, despite the, some of the difficulties in cure vaccine, uh, vaccine research, you know, we're still looking at that. Thanks so much, John. That sounds like a really great start to this conference. So what were some of the highlights from the first day? Yeah, so thanks, Mariana. So the first the first day was actually Sunday. It was a Sunday, you know, um, a Sunday evening, kind of a shorter day. But then Monday was the first full day. So what I talk about is, uh, thought I'd talk about here is come some of the plenaries and some of the main presentations from Monday. Um, the Monday AM session, there was usually two plenaries in the morning. And the first one highlighted the work from PEPFAR. Um, now, PEPFAR is the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. So if you remember PEPFAR, this was actually developed during the Bush, um, the um, uh, the Sun Bush, um, uh, uh, w, um, 
um, administration introduced in 2003. So, so this program is now about 20 years old. And um, they had a presenter, this is a John uh, Nekinsagong um, uh, from the U.S. Department of State um, who received uh, who reviewed 20 years of PEPFAR. He reviewed information about how poor life expectancy was prior to PEPFAR. And so far, the program has really provided 20 million patients with ARV therapy. They talked a lot about this and talked about over 7 million new infections. Um, that despite that, you know, the assisted with care for over 10 million of those infected, 20.1 uh, million are on therapy, 25 million lives saved, 5.5 million babies born without HIV, uh, and then 70,000 uh, facilities strengthened. 340,000 workers trained, 3,000 labs, all this, all these things that PEPFAR has really done over the, over the last uh, over the last 20 years. But really, um, the PEPFAR really has closed the mortality gap, and and I think that's the most important thing. And PEPFAR supports uh, over you know 35% of uh, many countries to 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 present uh, to to prevent um, uh, child mortality. There's about a 35% reduction there. The program is not without its challenges, though. And I said really since the Highest burden of mortality is still worse in Africa. 60% um, of all new infections occur there, 65% of all deaths globally. And while the 95, 95, 95, uh, um, some can reach this goal, like for example, Botswana, um, uh, uh, Eswatini, and Malasi, 90, 90, 90 is well below goals in some places like Cameroon, South Africa, Mozambique, Angola. Um, in other places as well. So, so I think they also talked about the 15 to 24-year-olds as really um, disproportionately at risk with the lowest awareness of HIV infection. And a lot of the adolescent girls are at risk three times uh, new infections versus boys. So adolescent girls, think adolescent girls for, for PrEP in the third world is going to be a huge issue and things that we, something we really have to think about moving forward. They also discussed HIV and global health security, uh, noted that many of the parallels between HIV and COVID-19, with the exception of uh, vaccination for, for HIV. Um, uh, PEPFAR continues to be concerned about the HIV rates, again, in young girls, uh, and in particular, um, uh, even the, the PEPFAR infrastructure, you know, and how important that was in, in managing COVID-19. There's a lot going on with PEPFAR that continues to, to make a huge difference in the, in the third world. Uh, but it really is crucial for other emergency emerging emerging infectious diseases. So the PEPFAR infrastructure really was, I, I think, uh, I think many of us agree with that that even our HIV uh, infrastructure here in the United States was was key to managing the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic. But next up uh, was a nice talk by Anna Locke looking at the path to hepatitis B cure. And you know, hepatitis B is something that we don't see a ton of in the United States. There are patients, obviously, but we have. A lot of our patients have been vaccinated, right? So that's one of the advantages. But you know, globally, it's a big issue. Um, and four percent of the global population has chronic Hep B. So um, the medications used that are commonly used that we know about are entecavir, TAF, TDF. These are kind of the mainstay of therapy. Many of us who do HIV work know if you have somebody who's co-infected, you're probably going to have them on TAF or TDF, or maybe potentially even entecavir if they have resistant hepatitis B. But she cautioned about hepatitis B, HIV infection, and changes to the drugs um, without TAF or TDF. And you notice a lot of our two drug regimens and even our injectable regimens that we have, some of these don't involve TAF or TDF, just to be careful of that. She also um, discussed uh, lifelong therapy at this point is the mainstay for most patients. And while the meds are effective, they do not eradicate hep B. So, so we do have some functional cures now, but some things being looked at um, these are some of the siRNA drugs. The AB729 is an example, VIR2218. Um, and then there's the OSA B-Clear study, which is um, looking at um, 
bipirovirucin, uh, vebocorvir, and beluvertide plus inferon. Uh, and then there's these NAP drugs. There's the REP2138, REP2165 with TDF. And then there's peganiferon alpha 2A. So you got a lot of options for hepatitis B cure. Those, those are all investigational. These are some things that we want to look at in the future for, for hepatitis B, especially for hepatitis B cure. Was any new data discussed that providers should know about? Uh, yeah, so Mary, Monday was a, actually a jam-packed day for new stuff. The most important thing that they got the most press, I think, on Monday at least, was uh, was the doxycycline for STI prevention. Now, we've heard about this before. We've heard about using doxycycline. Uh, usually, it's 200 milligrams anywhere from 24 to 72 hours after unprotected sex. And most of this data is from MSM, uh, men having sex with men and transgender women. And we know that this has worked in the past in the Prevenir study. Uh, and there have been other studies where this, this has been shown to be effective. But it, in this study, um, the, um, uh, there was this, this significantly reduced the incidence of STIs uh, in previous conferences. So, so research actually was done in Kenya in cisgender women looking at does this make a difference for women. And it was interesting that this strategy did not work um, to prevent chlamydia or gonorrhea uh, in, in these women. So results are highly anticipated. So this is the first study of this kind of kind in cisgender women, but the doxypep that given the 200 milligrams within 72 hours versus the standard of care, they looked at 449 women, 18 to 33 years old, all taking oral HIV prep. Uh, and this was done in Kenya. Um, interestingly, 18% of them had an STI baseline, but uh, contraception was not required. They did quarterly follow-ups and weekly text messages um, well, the primary endpoint of any STI, uh, which included chlamydia, gonorrhea, uh, and, and syphilis, and over 12 um, months, 78% um, uh, chlamydia, there's only one case of syphilis, and there was no difference in STIs whether you took the doxypep versus those that got kind of standard of care, and also the, the time to the first STI was not different. So bottom line, if you if this didn't work for, for females, which was interesting, um, and there's a lot of uh, talk about why, but... Uh, um, interesting that, that there were no HIV infections because people were taking PrEP, HIV PrEP. But the question is, why could this be? Some people think it might be endocervical tissues. Levels may not prevent STIs, although they're, um, they're, they are higher in vaginal tissue than in rectal tissue. That's been shown at this conference as well. It could be resistance um, or it could be adherence. But it's a big question. And I think um, there could be many differences in anatomy, for example, possibly antibiotic resistance. But um, I think there's more uh, interventions that need to be study to, to work to prevent uh, STIs in women is definitely definitely going to be needed. But this study did not did not work in women. So this whole idea of using uh, PEP for 200 milligrams, you know, doxypep using doxycycline after unprotected sex didn't work here. So um, just another thing too, which I think is important for us to talk about is the uh, the doxyvax trial, which looked at both a couple of interventions. It was a two by two factorial study, but it looked at using doxycycline for um, uh, for in MSM and transgender women uh, uh, in um, uh, doxycycline in this whole doxypep idea about using 200 milligrams within 72 hours. But they also looked at the meningococcal vaccine. I want to make sure everybody's clear about this. It's actually the vaccine that's against group B. So it's not the usual quadrivalent one that's more standard. It's a different vaccine. Um, but they used this to see if interventions would work to prevent STIs. Uh, and have a, a greater effect on gonorrhea prevention using the vaccine. If you remember in the past, some of the gonorrhea rates were not as, as I guess, as as um, as robust as syphilis and, uh, and and chlamydia. 
So the gonorrhea rates, I think people were worried about, you know, is this going to work with, with this, with the doxycycline? So the question was, if you add this special meningococcal vaccine, uh, would this, would this make a def difference? Um, so this was done in, again, MSM on PrEP. Actually, it was not transgender, it was just MSM on PrEP, uh, 720 patients on PrEP for at least six months. And they actually had to be enrolled in this Prevenir study, which is from a French study. Um, and they had to have a bacterial STI in the past 12 months with no STI symptoms. And it was a two-to-one ratio, basically giving people doxypep or no doxy and one-to-one -one for vaccine or no vaccine. And the primary endpoint for the study was tying to first syphilis or chlamydia um, and, and gonorrhea. So the interim results were in August 2022. The DSMB, which is the Data Safety Monitoring Board, stopped the doxypep and new STIs were reduced by 65%, 80% reduction in chlamydia, 55% reduction in gonorrhea. So you notice that gonorrhea numbers are a little bit down. So timing after sex was about 27 hours on average for doxy. Um, and then for the this 4C men B vaccine, which is what it's called, the 4C M E N B vaccine, that reduced the risk of first gonorrhea infection in half. Um, so they they gave um them this 4C men B vaccine at zero and two months or the doxypep 24 to 72 hours after sex. So the bottom line, the combination of both of these is doxypep periana plus the vaccine, right? had a significant reduction in all the STIs. So really kind of amazing, right? So you could actually give somebody a, um, a meningococcal vaccine and this version happen, happens to have uh, a, um, activity against gonococcus, which is you know the gonor gonorrhea, which causes gonorrhea. So you could actually potentially give people the vaccine plus the doxypep as an option. So this is kind of all in flux now, like based on guidelines. And I think that's really the big concern. You know, do, do the guidelines make this change? Do, do they not? You know, there is a concern about resistance. So there's a separate study that actually from San Francisco looking at a sub-study of patients um, looking at 56 uh, GC infections, 17 at baseline, and 39 on follow-up. They found no increase in tetracycline resistance, which would be the resistance piece that you would look at for doxycycline since doxy is in that tetracycline class. But they also looked at other, other things as well. So many of you may know, know that doxy has a good activity against staph aureus. So the question is, are you inducing staph aureus resistance with, the, with patients? And 14% actually decreased in colonization, but then there was no change in the rates of uh, MRSA and no change also with Neisseria. So the bottom line, although um, you know this is a, a small study, uh, there appears to be no marked resistance in this small sub-study. And the point here that you know for high-risk MSM, this may be an option. I think for from a resistance standpoint, I think we do need longer term data and more patients and more follow up. It's going to likely be needed, though. I'm sure that I think some in the field will probably be recommending this. There are uh, some places I know, like San Francisco, um, they have like a four page handout or like, you know, description of this doxypep idea. I don't think the vaccine piece has been added to it, but just know that there are places that are going to be recommending this. And we'll have to follow that over time to see if the STI guidelines change. And the CDC guidelines just recommend there is a one kind of like a one paragraph to talk about this, this doxypep because it got some press in the summer when it was some of the data was, uh, the other data was released. And now we have this now data with the negative study for women. And now we have the data on the vaccine edition. And now we have data on some resistance from, from the US. The resistance rates are definitely a little bit worse in the, in the European Union. So that's really a concern too, to kind of put this all together, kind of big picture across the globe, what, what should we be doing? I know that there was a prep implementation session that took place on this day as well. Can you talk a little bit about what was covered there? Yeah, so this is a, a great, great talk here. Um, 
they focus on the implementation challenges of with Cab LA. So this is an afternoon's um, um, session where they talked about data with injectable prep and how good the data is, and really um, it's safe with gender affirming uh, hormones. And they focused a lot on 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 the OA3, but they also mentioned the OA4 study, which is the HPT and OA4, which actually looked at women. Um, and so really no congenital abnormality, so that it seems to be safe in pregnancy. Uh, no, you know, it's safe with gender affirming hormones. For, so for transgender patients, this would work and be effective. Um, and the World Health Organ Organization does recommend that this may be an additional option for PrEP, this injectable long-acting uh, drug. So the big question is, can we use, you know, CAB-LA, you know, in uh, in the third world, um, you know, and uh, the discussion was really about efficacy to effectiveness. So there's, there's still this real gap between findings and clinical practices widening. And the speaker used the examples of having, a, you know, you can have a fast sports car, right? But if it's stuck in traffic, it doesn't matter. You're not going to get anywhere with it. So you can have great drugs, right? But if you still have the same infrastructure problems in your country or where you are, you know, this is this isn't going to solve all the problems. So the same with same with prep. It, you know, you can have the ideal drug candidate, but in reality, if there's no implementation infrastructure, it's not going to matter. So so it was a really nice job. They they highlighted that only a fraction of people who need PrEP or on it, then we, you know, we've missed the UN target of 3 million on it by 2020. And even in the US, the EHE wants 50% on PrEP, but I think we're only about 25% there. And that's mostly in white men. So in her area, Zimbabwe from 2018 to 22, had met the target in 22, 106% of targets. So they've done great there. But she also focused on, on three main pieces, that's demand, delivery, and data. And we need to increase the resource allocation um, uh, to evidence-based decision-making, you know, and, and focusing on equality, e equity, and justice. In addition, the, the, any any cavitative rollout really should be upholding the rights of patients uh, and include adolescent girls and women, people who inject drugs, and also uh, attempt to remove some of the stigma around PrEP for Black and African-American men and women. So the large discussion was on the neglect of culture in global health research and practice. So like where, where there are gaps um, to implementation, you know, it's it's people who inject drugs, it's sex workers, it's pregnancy, uh, gender diverse populations and those that are under 18. These implementation studies that have been looked at in, in sub-Saharan -Sub Africa, really only, um, you know, uh, where it has seven to 10% of new infections in the US uh, uh, annually for people with injecting drugs, another place where this could, could work well. Uh, but pricing is also gonna be a big issue and long-term insti resistance is also a big concern. There's an article that actually looked at this at model that, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, what the risk of insti resistance is if you give people long-acting injectables. There was another talk um, by uh, Laron Nelson who discussed in, uh, the, some of the inevitable inequalities. He's, he's actually from Yale and he focused on the use of PrEP and MSMs, highlighting previous data from many years ago, which showed health inequities for black patients. And, you know, um, looking looking at MSM in, in the U.S., black versus white from 2010 to 2018, HIV incidence, there's been much steeper declines in HIV incidence in white patients versus blacks. And this is largely, you know, we believe probably due to racial disparities in care in the U.S. It's also likely due to social and structural issues that impede PrEP rollout in black patients, including unstable housing, unemployment, incarceration history, uh, organizational practices and policies that also contribute to some of these inequities. And it was a really nice talk about kind of the, the inequities, both politically, economically, some of the incentives and the dis and disincentives and equities, et cetera, that reinforce some of these disparities. So I think the, the mechanisms are what can we do, um, really providing, uh, helping provide people access uh, and make, uh, make it a real choice for patients. And some of these business innovation models where, 
Um, these health business operators, especially in HPK and 096, they're building equity through advocacy. And the bottom line here is I think health and equities have not changed much, and we still need to do more to advocate for PrEP use and, and patients with real health health inequities. And then I think finally, Marianna, the, the, the nice talk was from uh, Sunil Solomon, who really reviewed some of the data on a long-acting PrEP and long-acting um, cabotegavir here as an implementation for people who inject drugs. And and um, and again, um, uh, started off by using the Ukraine as an example for some of the highest rates of people living with uh, people who inject drugs as in that country. In India, high rates of, of HIV and PWID. Uh, but compared to new infections in HBTN studies and the numbers at the same time in India for PWI, the, the U.S. is just as bad. So not getting uh, prep to them, uh, is, you know, is a big concern. So we need efficacy data in people uh, with injection drug use. You know, there is macaque data that exists, but there's no really data in large studies for patients. There's one Thai study that looked at TDF years ago, but some of the newer newer options are not there. Drug trigger interaction studies that are needed with buprenorphine and methadone, some of the because of due the long acting nature of the drug. Study designs could also focus on single arm trials with no control arms and unbalanced allocations to include incarcerated patients at release, people with unstable housing. All this comes up as a way to kind of measure acceptability. And, and the question is for long-acting cab, um, we've talked about the long-acting PK tail, and especially uh, if you convince somebody to take the injection, but now if they stop taking the injection, they have to take tablets to cover the tail. So do people understand that? Or, and are injecting drug users going to be willing to do that? These are all things that I think are, are kind of real challenges here. So in addition, to, um, uh, will providers be willing to do the long-acting cab in this population? And uh, um, Dr. Solomon discussed option, optional ways to deliver long-acting cab. Like, can we deliver to home, mobile clinic, the van, possible self-administration in the future, and even with the use of pharmacies in the future for administration? And then he, fi he finally discussed payment. Again, this is the third or fourth talk that talked about this, but who's going to pay for this? And really, the, the prep uh, and ART costs need to be dropped to about $15 per shot in order for this to kind of really be rolled out, especially in Sub-Saharan Africa and other places. So again, a lot of material that we covered today, but that's it for now, Mariana. More to come on our next edition, covering more updates from Corey. I've got more, uh, more stuff um, coming um, to you, uh, so so we can we can talk more about um, what happened at Croy. But that's it. That's it for now. John, thanks so much for joining us and telling us about some of the highlights from the first day of this truly important conference for listeners who may not have been able to attend. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AATC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaatc.org. That's www.necaatc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaatc.org. Stay safe and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.